morning's scripture reading is taken from uh, Exodus 20th chapter, verse 7, and from Acts, the 19th chapter, verses 11 through 20. From Exodus. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And from Acts. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sviva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, as we come to you now, as we seek to be attentive to your word, pray that you would be teaching us and helping us to recognize both the great salvation we have in Jesus and what it means to lift up and bear his name. Pray these things in his name. Amen. So as we continue our sermon series through the Ten Commandments, I couldn't help but reflect as we come to this third commandment that it is not just a problem when you have a wrong idea. It is also a problem when you have a correct but incomplete idea. A correct but incomplete idea can lead us astray. It can make us think we kind of know what's going on when really we don't know what's happening. And I was thinking about that because of this third commandment. Because almost all of us, if we grew up in the church or grew up around the church or had that one aunt that was really religious, whatever, almost all of us have an idea about what this commandment is about, which is to say that it is about not using God's name to cuss, not saying things like, God damn it, except in very specific religious contexts like this one. And that is a true and correct application of the commandment. That is not incorrect that this would include that. Um, but it is only a tiny piece 
of what the third commandment is about. And by focusing only on that, I think we can very easily fall into the trap where we feel like, oh, yeah, we know what this commandment is. We've got this handled. When we miss things that are of much greater concern. But for that to make sense, we're going to just jump in and start by talking about the commandment itself. First, let's look at the actual language of it. Um, I'm going to first read it from the ESV, which is going to be more familiar to the way a lot of us may have heard it growing up and sticks pretty close to the Hebrew. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, that is probably how you've heard the commandment said before, something like that. But it raises the obvious question, what does it mean you shall not take the Lord's name in vain? That is not something we talk, you know, I don't take things in vain in a general way in my life. Well, first let me give, this is my just super literal translation of what the Hebrew says, all right? Um, It says, you shall not lift up or carry the name of Yahweh your God for emptiness or vanity or worthlessness. That's just kind of, that's what those words actually mean. You shall not um, lift up or carry, you shouldn't use or display God's name for things that are hollow or worthless or vain. And that's why if you have the NIV translation, which is a common modern translation, it says it like this. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Because that's getting at, it's a lot bigger than just cussing. Um, What this is talking about is any situation where we would wrongly use God's name. But then that raises the obvious second question, well, what do we mean God's name? Um, What is in a name when we talk about these commandments? Well, on one level, as we have discussed, if you've been us as we've been preaching through the book of Exodus, God does actually kind of give himself a proper name or a title. Uh, It is Yahweh which means something like, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And whenever your Bible has an uppercase Lord in it, where it's all in uppercase letters, that's that proper name, Yahweh. Now, if you know anyone who is Jewish, one of the primary things that they take this commandment to mean is about that word, actually. And they would be squirming if they heard me pronounce that word, because one of the ways they try to keep this commandment is by never pronouncing the name Yahweh. Um, they don't write it or say it. They actually say Adonai in its place when they would come to it in the Bible. Um, And we as Christians don't think that's a correct interpretation because God gives that name to Israel in his scriptures. In fact, the Old Testament uses it a ton, like more than 7,000 times, including places like the Psalms that Israel is meant to sing. It doesn't seem that this commandment means, like, don't pronounce the Lord's proper name. Although certainly using that name vainly would be a part of what this commandment prohibits. Instead, the idea of a name in the Old Testament is that it is about, it's not just this set of syllables, but rather it is um, about a person's identity. We kind of just give people names randomly or because, you know, like it was our one uncle's name or whatever. But in the ancient world, in the first place, it was assumed that a name was sort of meaningful about you, that it communicated something about who you were and what you were like. Um, And that um, is true of God's name. So, for example, from Psalm 8, it starts, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Now, in that case, that is not just saying that God's name, the earth is, makes it majestic in the sense that, like, the letters of his name are spelled out in the sky or something. What that means is that God himself, his reputation, his being and identity are shown forth in creation. And so when we talk about God's name, we're not just talking about the word Yahweh, but any time we talk about God, we are using his name. Um, for Christians, that also means when we talk about Jesus. Anytime we talk about Jesus. Um, well, when the Ten Commandments were given, that wasn't a part of it. Jesus Christ, we are told, now bears the name that is above every name. And everyone will confess at that, that his name is Lord, which is, again, that reference to Yahweh. More specifically, in the ancient world, a person's name especially meant their reputation. And we still sometimes use it that way. When people talk about, like, ruining my good name, right? Um, that's a way of expressing that idea that our name means how we're thought of, our reputation. And when we speak of God's reputation, Scripture usually talks about that as God's glory. That part of God's purpose is to show forth his glory in the world. He is powerful and loving and good and true. And what he's doing in the world is meant to show that forth, to show that reputation then, to give him that reputation in the world. So, for example, the psalmist recounts some of the events that we read about in Exodus. In Psalm 106, he says, When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And so he's setting it up, and then he goes on to say, Yet God saved them. For his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. So God's name means his reputation. There, his reputation among the nations. That he saved Israel to show forth his power and love to the world. So that's giving us sort of the content that's there. But before we start unrolling the commandment, um, I want to give you a story that I think is a very memorable one to to me at least, when I think about God's name, and that is from our reading in Acts 19. Um, and I will just acknowledge that while we're all tempted to read Bible stories very seriously, this is a funny story in some ways. But anyway, the church is new and established and growing, and the Apostle Paul is now going to the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus, and his ministry is being accompanied by this testimony by God of signs and wonders. And so we read in Acts 19 that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So God, God is working through Paul's ministry and God's reputation, God's name, is being proclaimed. Um, but Paul, Paul was also this Jewish guy, and within Judaism there was this tradition in this time of, um, of exorcists and like mystical sorcerer kind of people. And these guys that traveled around looked at Paul and thought, oh, here is this other like exorcist sorcerer guy, and he's got this new magic word. And that is how they treated the name of Jesus. So we read that some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus— over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And in particular, we're told about this one group of, um, of these exorcists. It says that seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. But then here's what happens. One day, the evil spirit answered them. 
Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Now, we need to understand what's happening here. These sons of Sceva are taking the name of Jesus, right, and treating it like this sort of magic incantation that they can just use to serve themselves. They're trying to build up their reputation as sort of these magicians, and they're using it to, to gain selfishly and get paid because that's part of how they made their living. They're using the name of Jesus to do that, and they're going around trying to cast out demons, and then one day they encounter a demon, and he says, now hold on a minute. Jesus I know, and I'm afraid of his name, and I know about Paul who's serving him, but who are you? And then verse 16, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So he attacked these seven guys and um, beats the snot out of them and rips off their clothes, and they all go running away. (laughs) Um... And that's, that in many ways is meant, that part of the story is already trying to set up a sense of like they're using God's name in vain, right? And they're suffering the consequences of it. But then notice what comes next, because it's equally important to this commandment. Because it says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So the result of God punishing these people who misused his name, was that his name was therefore exalted. And so then we read in verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right. So with that in the background, let's then start to roll out the third commandment. If you were with us last week, what we did and what we're going to do again this week is we're going to first focus on the specific things that the commandment seems to be addressing in its narrow sense. And then we also talked about how there's a broader way in which each of these commandments should be applied. But first, narrowly, if we look just within, like, the law of Moses and the immediate surroundings of the third commandment, it seems to touch on a couple of things. Um, The scholar Joachim Duma has these three, and I thought this was helpful. First of all, within the law of Moses, this commandment gets applied to sorcery which is not something that modern people talk about a lot, but maybe it's not as weird as we think. First, just to explain, so scripture prohibits things like sorcery and divination, and Christians, when they hear that, can feel like either A, that's really weird and foreign, or B, go to all these like creepy horror story on the internet places. Don't do that. Just here's the deal. Sorcery in the ancient world was all based on this idea that you could use certain divine names or titles or words to force gods to do things for you, right? It was an attempt to force gods to do stuff. And the problem for the Bible with sorcery was that either A, those gods were not the Lord, in which case you're breaking the first commandment, right? Because you're, you're trying to use false gods, you know, to, to do things. Or B, those that is the lord and in that case you're taking the lord's names and titles and thinking that you have power over him by using them you think that you can kind of just twist him to do whatever you want Um, on those terms it's actually worth pointing out that some of the really extreme like faith healer people in our day who travel around and you know in the name of jesus promise that they can do what you know do whatever they tell him to that's honestly essentially sorcery (laughs) in the way that it was used in the ancient world That said, that's one way specifically it gets applied in the law of Moses. The second one is to false prophecy. 
there are people who come as false prophets claiming to have a word from the Lord when they're just making stuff up and usually trying to advance their own agenda. And it's striking. The Bible describes false prophets like this. Here's an example from Jeremiah. He says, the pr- these prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They're prophesying false visions and divinations and idolatries and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. You'll notice at the beginning and end, he's really stressing the problem with false prophets is that they're using God's name to advance their ideas. And that one obviously still happens, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. But then the third way within the law of Moses that the third commandment gets applied is to false oaths, which is swearing things falsely. For instance, from Leviticus, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So it's common in the ancient world when you would swear an oath or a vow or make a promise that you would swear on something. You would say, like, God is my witness, but, like, really mean that in a, in, a, in a deep sense. And so particularly in that biblical world, that is taking the Lord's name in vain if you swear something falsely. We actually still do that in court, right? A witness, you know, the Bible comes out and, you know, swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And that is an oath in that biblical sense, which means that perjury, even in our day, right, would be a, a violation of the third commandment. Um, And then in Israel, that is applied as well. So those are the kind of specific ways that it gets rolled out. But then remember last week we said each of these commandments, as we see the way they're expanded in Scripture, also speaks to us more generally. We gave a couple of rules about that. The first rule we said was that each of the commandments covers a category of sin. The commandments are categories. And so let's first just, I'm going to put up, the full definition of the category of sin that the third commandment covers, all right? The third commandment forbids all instances where we use God's name, reputation, or being in a way that is careless or selfish or beneath his perfect holiness. Again, it's about any time we use God's name or reputation or being in a way that is careless or selfish or beneath his perfect holiness. So let's talk about a number of ways in our world that we can see that happen. The first one we already mentioned, but I'm going to talk about it because it is one piece of the third commandment, which is cursing and profanity would be things that this commandment would tell us not to do. Now this is where we need to back up a minute because Christians tend to shove more stuff under this category than is probably um, right. So... When the Bible talks about inappropriate speech, there's really two separate things that get discussed. One of them is what we might just think of as inappropriate speech in a general way. So scripture in places like Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 forbids things like obscene or inappropriate talk. And it doesn't go into the details of that, but, you know, it's talking in ways that that celebrate wickedness or that make evil things look good. Um, And it would say we should not do that. We shouldn't, you know, celebrate sin or ugliness in the way that we speak. And that includes a lot of what we would think of as crude language. Although importantly, that piece of of the Bible's teaching also applies, like, you don't just apply it rigidly, right? Like, it's 
you can, you can say inappropriate and hurtful and obscene and sinful things and avoid four-letter words, right? Like, people in church do it all the time. And so we should recognize that, like, you know, while it includes that, we want to make sure that we don't, you know, make that. But that's not—none of that is really a part of the third commandment. Separate from that are two things that we would technically call cursing and profanity. Cursing in the Bible— means literally issuing a curse against someone or something. So when you say, damn it to hell, Christianly, that's actually a real thing. (laughs) Like, that's an actual place and an actual thing that can happen. Um, And um, so the problem with saying things like that carelessly are that we are actually speaking carelessly about things that are real. The easiest way to recognize that problem is just to consider what would happen in our world if when people said things like, God damn it, the Lord chose to honor those requests as the prayers that they are and start granting them, such that, you know, you're driving down the interstate and pits are opening up beneath cars as they plunge into the lake of fire because of the things that people are saying about them, right? I mean, that, that's the reality of what we're talking about when we use that sort of language, um, And then profanity, likewise, is technically meaning taking the Lord's name and attaching it to something profane, right? And so, like, um, dropping your hammer on your toes is not the sort of thing that is befitting of a, you know, of an exclamation of, you know, Jesus Christ. And so, again, you know, you're attaching the Lord's name to something that is not reverent of it. And those things, that set of specific things, would be prohibited by the third commandment. But there's also a lot of other ways, and honestly, probably more serious ways, that we can break this commandment. So let me try to name those as well. First of all, we break the third commandment whenever we use God's name to anoint our private opinions. There are Christians who often talk about how the Lord tells them things, or God gave me a word for you, or whatever, and what they really mean is just like, I thought about this, and here's my opinion. All of us, in some ways, can be tempted to do this when we, you know, when we take our thoughts and equate them with God's. I mean, I remember back in college, there would be certain guys who would, like, really pray about asking a girl out and then go to her and say, like, the Lord told me, you know, <laughs> to, you know to, to, to go out with you. And the answer is, like, no, he didn't, right? <laughs> um, but, but, but any time that we take our opinions and thoughts and, it, and then attach the sort of warrant of Jesus to them, to say, this is what Jesus says. This is a sure and certain Christian thing. The biblical term for that is false prophecy. Anytime that we take God's name and use it as an authority for things that he has not said, right? Anytime that we take God's name and use it just to sign off on something that we think, that is false prophecy. And you were executed for that in the Old Testament. I think about that a lot as a pastor. Because I know a lot of pastors do not do a good job of distinguishing their thoughts and opinions about a range of issues from the things that they can clearly speak to scripturally. And um, while I, as a minister, have an authority to speak when I'm saying what God's word says, my authority only covers that. And when I speak beyond that, it's inappropriate for me to attach the Lord's name to it. And that's true for all of us, because there are times that all of us can be tempted to do that. So that's one way we can break it in our world. This commandment also condemns us using God's name lightly, using it in ways that are trite or cliche. 
attaching God's name to anything that is hollow or meaningless cheapens God's reputation. Um, If we should not say, you know, God damn it without recognizing the seriousness of what we're saying, the same thing is also true of saying praise the Lord, right? If we just throw that around without really having a heart of praise, we are treating the Lord's name cheaply. Slapping Jesus' name on t-shirts and bumper stickers can at times be a violation of this commandment. Jokes about the old dude by the pearly gates attaching God's name to it can attach it to emptiness. Any time that we do not treat God with the weight that his glory demands, that is in danger of breaking this commandment. And connected to that, it is especially dangerous to use God's name for selfish gain. If using it tritely is a problem, it is far worse to use it selfishly. Politicians on both sides of the aisle love to quote scripture and attach Jesus' name to what they're doing, especially in the United States. And for whatever reason, many Christians love that. They feel like they're throwing us a bone. But what they're doing is a risky thing. If they are doing it not because, I mean, again, if they're doing it to promote the greatness and glory of God and because they deeply from the heart want to submit themselves to him, that's fine. But if they're doing it because they think it's going to get them votes and pander to certain demographics and they don't really believe it, that's a breaking of the third commandment. Just generally as Christians, we should probably be less quick to applaud such public displays of faith. I always honestly feel nervous seeing how lightly Jesus gets thrown around in our politics. Let me just, I think about this a lot, so let me just try to express to you why we should not be as comfortable with that as we are. Let me read you some quotes from a very influential politician from the past. He said, for example, the government will preserve and defend those basic principles on which our nation has been built. It regards Christianity as the foundation of our national morality and the family as the foundation of national life. Sounds good, right? Or the government being resolved to undertake the political and moral purification of our public life are creating and securing the conditions necessary for a really profound revival of religious life. Or this one goes even further than a lot of people today would go. Secular schools can never be tolerated because such schools have no religious instruction. And a general moral instruction without a religious foundation is built on air. Consequently, all character training and religion must derive from faith. Now those all sound good, right? And those are the kinds of quotes that evangelicals in our day would love and that Christians would get behind the kind of person who said that, right? Um, And that's actually what happened in Germany in 1932 and 33 when the German church backed Adolf Hitler's rise at the head of the Nazi party. Those are all quotes by him. And you can actually find hundreds of quotes by him, you know, I mean, doing that sort of pandering to Christianity. Now, I am not saying that every politician who talks about Jesus and Christian values is Hitler, all right? (laughs) Do do, Do not walk away with that sense. But I say that because it is important for us to recognize that when people invoke the name of Jesus, that should actually make us sort of nervous and more cautious because they're treading on really dangerous ground. There's other ways that we can use God's name for selfish gain, too. One of the ways that it happens is when people try to make a buck. For most of history, 
you could not buy Christian merchandise because people would have regarded it as blasphemous. Um, now we spend billions and billions of dollars, right, on sort of divine knickknacks. Or I sometimes hear Christian artists who get caught in significant moral failure, and they complain, like, why am I being held to a higher moral standard? But the answer is, if you've chosen to market yourself using the name of Jesus, you have actually attached yourself to that higher sort of standard. And again, that does not mean that everyone who's an author or artist, right, is wrong for, like, selling a Christian thing. But it's a serious thing to claim God's name. And if we do it, we are... Um, we have to make sure that we're giving him appropriate honor and reverence as we do so. If all of that seems hard, you remember that our second rule we talked about last week, if you were here, and again, if you weren't, you can go back and listen to it online, is that the Ten Commandments also include the heart. Each of them includes not just outward actions, but our hearts. And so we also break this commandment whenever we treat God lightly or trivially in our hearts or minds. Whenever we talk or think about God while misunderstanding him or failing to appreciate who we're talking about, we are using his name vainly. That can happen in a lot of ways. But one that I was thinking about this week as I thought about this text, um, there's this kind of spiritual shorthand that Christians naturally use when we talk about God. And it's not inherently wrong, um, but it can be dangerous. Like, like that. So I've been around churches that, 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 that love to do this thing where they're like, the pastor's like, God is good. And then the people say, does anyone know this thing? They say, all the time, right? Have you heard this? It's like this call and response. So, you know, God is good. Right? And then usually like, all the time. And that, um, that sort of thing is not inherently wrong, right? It's not that it's breaking the third commandment necessarily. But the problem is... Um, what does it mean when we say, like, God is good, right? I mean, it's actually worth asking, because most of the people who engage in those calls and responses, like, have they thought that through? Like, does that mean that God always does what we like? Does that mean that he always gives us what we want? I mean, that doesn't seem to work in the world, so maybe, maybe that means that everything is good, right? Is that what it means, that, like, all the bad stuff in the world is actually good because God's in control of it? Well, that doesn't seem to make sense either. So maybe it means that God just isn't really in control, right? Maybe, like, the good stuff is from God and all the bad stuff in the world is just like, well, I wish I could do something about that, but I can't really, right? What, is, <laughs> what does it mean that God's good? None of that is what it means, right? God's goodness properly means that in his powerful administration of the world, he works all things in a way that ultimately results in us becoming more like Jesus and his glory being shown in his grace and provision. And in that sense, God is good. Um, and it's true, we use shorthand because what I don't have to say every time is that I don't have to say God is powerfully administering the world such that he's working all things in a way that ultimately results in becoming more like Jesus and his glory being shown in his grace and provision, right? I don't have to say that every time I talk about God's goodness. It's okay for me to use that shorthand. But the danger for many Christians, for many of us, is that all we ever learn is the shorthand, and we never wrestle with the underlying truths. And the reason that that's a problem is because when we just throw around the shorthand, and we believe wrong things in our hearts as we say it, that's taking the Lord's name in vain, right? If we don't have an appreciation of what God's goodness really means. And 
I think about that sometimes because a lot of us have this kind of faith where we sing these songs of like, you know, you are holy, you are loving, you are sovereign, just and good. And, I, you know, it's always just like, do we really like know what those words mean? Because if not, again, we can be taking the Lord's name in vain. Anytime we think or talk about God and picture someone less than he is, whenever we say the Lord and we mean the Santa Claus in the sky or the, the great cosmic Dumbledore or the grouchy old guy running things or whatever, um, whenever we're attaching God's name to some idea we have that is less than the fullness of what he is, we are breaking the third commandment. So where does that leave us? Well, I suspect if you're like me that it leaves you somewhat challenged and uncomfortable. Because I recognize in my heart that I regularly break this commandment and that I'm very comfortable with a great deal of triteness and a lack of reverence that gets attached to Jesus' name. And so in light of that, I want to end by speaking two words to us that both stem out from that idea of God's name. A word of grace first, and then a word of what I hope is encouraging challenge. First is the word of grace. When we think about God's name, one of the striking themes in Scripture is the way that God's name ends up being tied to his salvation. We saw this already in one of the texts we read earlier, but consider, for example, a couple of these prayers. From Jeremiah, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Or Daniel, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. These prayers are saying, Lord, save us because of your name. And the reason for that is because Scripture teaches us that God saves us for his name. That's why, for example, he spares us judgment. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. And that is why God forgives us. I, yes I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Here's what that means. God's name, like we said, is his glory and his reputation. We, in our sin, rebel against God's glory and besmirch his reputation. And God could vindicate his name just by like, you know, I mean, the, the approach of just raining down judgment and taking us all out. But as we said, God's name is meant to show forth who he is. And he is not just a God of that sort of justice, but also a God of love and grace. And so the remarkable claim of Scripture is that, um, is that the way that God shows the glory of his name is that as we blaspheme and think vainly and treat lightly his name, he nonetheless chooses, in order to show its goodness, to save and rescue us, to come as Jesus and work our salvation. He responds to our attack on his name because of his name um, by showing his love and calling us giving us a chance to repent and trust in him and have our sins forgiven. If we examine this commandment and realize that we stand convicted by it, our response should be to call on the name of Jesus Christ. 
because it is by his name that our sins are forgiven and we are saved. He pardons us for that sin of breaking the third commandment, just like all the others. And that then leads us into our second word. As we've said already in this series, whenever we recognize our sin, as much as that drives us to the gospel and hope in Jesus, it does also encourage us to seek to grow and grow in how we follow the Lord. And so we might ask, in light of the breadth of that thing, how do we learn to keep this commandment? Well, again, if you were here with us last week, we had a third rule, and that was that each commandment includes the positive. So each commandment calls us to do something, as well as prohibiting some things for us. And um, what this commandment calls us to, uh, on one level, it reminds us um, of a further way we can break it, right? Um, If it is sin for us to lift up God's name in vanity, then what's the opposite? The opposite is not silence, but it's lifting up God's name in honor, right? And respect and reverence. That's what we're called to do. So on one level, we recognize we also break this command, not just by things we say, but by all the times that we're silent when we should be speaking God's honor. But that also tells us one of the main tools we have to grow in our obedience to this commandment. One of our chief duties as creatures is to give praise to our creator. That's just, you know, he is the artist. We are the piece of art that he's made. And part of what we're here for is to reflect the beauty and creativity of that artist. Um, And so that means that when God works and blesses and saves us, we ought to lift up his name. We ought to publicly bear witness to his goodness to us. And that's what the third commandment ultimately should call us to as a positive, to speaking and bearing witness to the goodness of God. Now, here's the problem when I say that, is that I think we all have this stereotypical person in our heads, and it is not who I am telling you to be, right? Like the Bible-thumping guy or the church lady, you know, who's just like, you know, praise the Lord all the time, or, you know, can you come over this afternoon? Well, if the Lord wills it, I will, or, you know, I mean, you know, the— that the cookie is delicious and it's all glory to Jesus Christ, right? There's this, there's this way of doing that that I think some of us imagine. And that is not what I am encouraging us to be. In fact, that person probably is in danger of breaking the third commandment by using God's name too often without proper thought and in ways that are trying to make them look really pious. But the danger with such stereotypes, right, is that we have that stereotype in our head and then that keeps us from considering the true calling that we do have. Uh, we do not need to go around throwing Jesus' name willy-nilly the way other people throw around four-letter words. We should speak his name reverently and with a sense of weightiness, but we should speak it. And I think the danger for many of us is that we simply choose never to speak about God. Uh, You know, I'm struggling. I'm in a hard place. And I come to the Lord's word and his spirit works in my heart and there's prayer and there's the encouragement of the saints and these things help me, right? To, you know, to reach equilibrium again, to be at a place of peace. And someone notices this, right? And they're like, man, like you're in a good mood today or you seem kind of encouraged. And I say, yeah, I guess I just rolled out of the bed this morning on the right side. That is a failure to acknowledge all those ways that God is at work. Right? And what I should be called to do instead is to acknowledge that he's the one who's brought me to that place of hope. 
Or the Holy Spirit is at work in me, and he's drawing me towards Jesus and, um, and sanctifying me. And God, the means of grace God's giving in the church and scripture and all of this is helping me to, to learn and grow to be a little more like Jesus. And someone notices some aspect of that, some way that I'm, you know, repentant or selfless or something. And, I'm, you know, and they, they compliment it, and I'm just like, well, you know, I've just been working on that. Again, right? There's an opportunity there that I could take to speak glory and honor to the name of God, and I've chosen not to do it. We often avoid those opportunities because we're afraid of people and their opinions, or because we are ungrateful, or because um, we want to claim the glory for ourselves. Honestly, plenty of the time, it's that last one for me. And when we have a chance to give God's praise and decline, it's true that we're breaking this commandment, But at the same time, cultivating that habit of occasional but honest and real praise and honor to the Lord's name is one of the best ways that we have to learn how to keep it. Because the more we say true, rich, glorious things about God, the harder it actually is for us at the same time to say trite, careless, um, profane things. The more we think about the wonder and majesty and goodness of him, the harder it is for us to entertain thoughts of him that are beneath him. And so if you want a concrete step this week, as you think about that, to seek an opportunity or two uh, with people you know in the context of just your life to speak honor to God's name. Look for those ways that he's at work, and then choose, again, not, not every ten minutes, but occasionally when it seems right to just acknowledge the fact that he is good to us he's at work in us he's caring for us and growing us because and this is what i want to leave us with god's name is worth such honor it is a privilege that we get to speak it at all the fact that God did not need to reveal himself to us as creatures at all, right? The relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father, that is a one-sided relationship. God is not lonely. God is not incomplete. God doesn't need us to cheer him up, right? You know, I mean, he, he has condescended to us and given us the honor of knowing him, the honor of being able to speak his name. He is worthy of our praise in his power perfect love and grace. And so let us give him that praise in how we speak and think of him today. Let's pray. Father, I stand both convicted and challenged by your word, but also encouraged. You are great. Your name is truly above every name. And I pray that I might show forth its glory in my life. Pray this for all of us together. Amen.